Thank you so much for coming today. This is Emily Knox Gateway. Emily and I are part of the group that's uh, leaving for the DR this Saturday. And I'm going to let Emily kick this off for us this morning by reading our scripture for us. So we're going to be looking at a, a story that Jesus tells from Matthew chapter 18. Okay, if you miss everything else, we're going to go quickly this morning. I'm going to cut out some stories because you know stories of bitterness. I read a bunch of counseling books leading up to this series, and I remember reading a story of the almost 60-year-old man who goes to see a counselor, hasn't spoken to his family and anybody in his family for almost 40 years because they told him what they thought of a woman that he was engaged to, a woman that he ended up not marrying for some of the same reasons that his family shared with him. But, you know, he hasn't seen anyone in his family for almost 40 years, and now he's old and lives all by himself and extremely bitter. And I doubt, really, that uh, he hasn't spoken to them just because of this one incident of family honesty. There's probably somehow that hit a soft spot in him. You know, we've heard stories. Uh, there are plenty of folks. You may struggle with this yourself. There may be some uh, areas in which bitterness threatens to attach itself to you this morning. So if you miss everything else, don't miss this. The way to deal with bitterness is almost always through forgiveness. So with that in mind, I'm going to ask Emily to read one of Jesus' stories for us from Matthew 18. And let's go old school. Stand with us out of reverence for God's Word. Matthew 18, verses 21 through 35. And this is Jesus speaking about this stuff. Then Peter came to Jesus and asked, Lord, how many times shall I forgive my brother when he sins against me? Up to seven times? Jesus answered, I tell you not seven times, but seventy-seven times. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven is like a king who wanted to settle accounts with his servants. As he began the settlement, a man who owed him ten thousand talents was brought to him. Since he was not able to pay, the master ordered that he and his wife and his children and all that he had be sold to repay the debt. The servant fell on his knees before him, Be patient with me, he begged, and I will pay back everything. The servant's master took pity on him, canceled the debt, and let him go. But when that servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. He grabbed him and began to choke him. Pay back what you owe me, he demanded. His fellow servant fell to his knees and begged him, Be patient with me, and I will pay you back. But he refused. Instead, he went off and had the man thrown into prison until he could pay the debt. When the other servants saw what had happened, they were greatly distressed and went and told their master everything that had happened. Then the master called the servant in. You wicked servant, he said. I canceled all that debt of yours because you begged me to. Shouldn't you have had mercy on your fellow servant just as I had on you? In anger, his master turned him over to the jailers to be tortured until he should pay back all he owed. This is how my heavenly father will treat each of you unless you forgive your brother from your heart. You may be seated. Thanks, Emily. On June 17, 1966, two black men walked into Lafayette Grill in Patterson, New Jersey, and shot three people to death. Reuben Hurricane Carter and an acquaintance fit the description of the murderers. So Carter was convicted and jailed for the crime, but he never shut up. The fiercely outspoken boxer maintained his innocence and became his own jailhouse lawyer after serving 19 years for a crime he didn't commit. His sentence was overturned, and he was finally released. As a free man, Carter reflected on how he has responded to this injustice in his life, and this is Carter, and I quote, The question invariably arises, it has before and it will again, Reuben, are you bitter? 
And in answer to that, I will say, after all that's been said and done, the fact that the most productive years of my life between the ages of 29 and 50 have been stolen, the fact that I was deprived of seeing my children grow up, wouldn't you think I would have a right to be bitter? Wouldn't anyone under those circumstances have a right to be bitter? In fact, it would be very easy for me to be bitter, but that has never been my nature or my lot to do things the easy way. If I've learned nothing else in life, I've learned that bitterness only consumes the vessel that contains it. And for me, to permit bitterness to control or to infect my life in any way whatsoever would be to allow those who imprisoned me to take even more than the 22 years they've already taken. Now that would make me an accomplice to their crime. End quote. I think many of us have become accomplices in the cause of our own hurt and harm by holding on to the bitterness in us, we hung ourselves up and we never move on to forgiveness. When we hold on to the bitterness and refuse to forgive, I, I believe it works something like this. So let's look at this chart. I think a bitterness cycle works something like this. Injury is inflicted. Hurt is experienced. It hits a soft spot. A place of pain, a place of vulnerability, the repeated phrase from your father, you're such a sissy, why are you crying, or you'll never amount to anything, or the time in the third, fourth, and fifth grade when all of your classmates yelled at you, fatty, fatty, or whatever, it hits a soft spot. I've described it like this before. Diane and I have been in many counseling settings where we've had conversations with someone about difficulty that they're having, and, you know, invariably at some point, One of us will look at one of the people that we're talking to and say, have you considered that your reaction might be out of proportion to the situation? Well, what do you mean? Well, imagine it's like this. Imagine you're dancing with your partner, and all of a sudden he steps on your toe. Your response is, ow. And then you keep dancing, and he steps on your toe again. And your response is, ow, we need to get lessons. But if your toe has been run over by a car the week before, it's smashed and broken and all the bones are damaged, and now you're dancing, and he steps on your toe, the reaction is, oh my gosh, what? Because he's hit a soft spot. When a soft spot is hit, when hurt hits a soft spot, anger is nurtured and bitterness develops. Let's look up at the top. Injury inflicted, hurt experience. Go to the next slide, Jonathan. Let's call this the forgiveness cycle. Injury inflicted, hurt experience. Same thing happens, but it's healthily expressed. Forgiveness is offered, and connection with God and freedom are maintained. They are not in the bitterness cycle. Hurt runs into what I call a soft spot. This may be some past hurt from our childhood or insecurity or some need that drives us to believe that we have the right to be angry and to stay angry until the offending person is either punished or makes it right. Jesus tells us flat out that this kind of attitude is not part of a healthy spirituality. This kind of dynamic, the the bitterness cycle, will inhibit our ability to make a connection with God and it will inhibit our personal freedom. So... Remember to keep in mind the story that Emily read for us. And I want us this morning to reflect on another real brief passage of Scripture, but we're not going to reflect on it by reading the whole thing. We're going to say it together. So those of you who are familiar enough with it, say this with me if you would. 
the disciples came to Jesus and they said, Lord, you are amazing. And listen, when you pray, it's like something happens. So would you teach us to pray? And Jesus said, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses those who trespass against us, and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. And then Jesus follows that up with this. For if you forgive men when they sin against you, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive people their sins, your Father won't forgive you your sins. The Matthew 18 passage that Emily read for us, that story tells us three general things about forgiveness that we got to remember. Number one, the word forgiveness is the same word. The word he uses for forgiveness is the same word used in connection with someone being released from a debt. Forgiveness essentially means that we give up our right to be paid back and our right to be right. All claims, all of our claims are relinquished. We do not hold on to anything. This is what God has done for us in Jesus. In fact, Paul actually uses the language of an ancient Near Eastern courtroom when he describes Jesus' activity. He says God justifies us, a legal term. That means he treats us as if we've done nothing wrong. He releases us from our debts, and he does this because our debts, the distance that we have created in our relationship with God and all that flows out of that, that has been placed on Jesus And Jesus was condemned in our place. He paid our debts. Now, releasing people doesn't mean we simply allow people to walk over us. Forgiveness does not mean enablement. For example, we don't let the person who stole from us continue to have access to our finances. But we do not hold on to the right to be paid back by them either. Forgiveness means releasing from debts. Forgiveness, secondly, doesn't have a limit. How many times, Peter said, because I am really tired of this. And Jesus says, well, 70 times 7. In other words, (laughs) this doesn't stop, Peter. Not for their benefit, for yours. Third, if we refuse to forgive others, God will not forgive us. There's a well-known dialogue between General Oglethorpe and the pastor and revivalist John Wesley. Oglethorpe was a British general who became the founder of the colony of Georgia in the United States. And Oglethorpe one time in a public setting said, I never forgive and I never forget, to which John Wesley responded, then, sir, I hope you never sin. This is not because God is tit for tat. This is because God knows that our lack of forgiving others represents a serious spiritual condition that will inevitably harm us and everyone around us. Look, imagine, let's illustration of what this means between us and God and how his work in us is displayed to others, offered to others. Imagine if you have a problem with generosity. You can't let go of your stuff, and then someone comes along and says, okay, look, I'm going to pay for everything you want or need and whatever you offer to others, so go be generous. This makes generosity easy. This is like God's forgiveness. God's forgiveness covers everything on your behalf, so go offer it to others. 
Okay, now let's consider, and we're going to make this a little bit like a seminar this morning. We're going to go quickly. So let's consider steps that we need to take in order to experience freedom from bitterness. So how are we supposed to deal with bitterness? We're going to look this morning at six steps to forgiveness and freedom from bitterness. Step number one, you've got to identify the source of the bitterness. Identify the source of the bitterness. Some of you are familiar with the Old Testament story of King Saul, and King Saul is appointed king over Israel, and then this young whippersnapper David comes along, and Saul feels threatened by the boy David and bitterly tries to kill him for the last third of his adult life. And in the process, he ruined his own reputation and his rulership. Saul refused to do the hard work, I think, of recognizing his bitterness as bitterness and to do the work of identifying the true source of that bitterness, the real soft spot. We must identify the soft spot, the hurt spot in our lives. This is the place where bitterness can take root. Let me give an example. For, again, for some of us men, it's not hard to imagine being hurt by something our father said to us repeatedly when we were young. And I may have vowed at some point in my life, early in my life, I didn't realize it, but I made a vow as a seven-year-old boy or a nine-year-old boy, or I'll never be hurt like that again. I will never let my emotions get the best of me. But relationships always involve some level of hurt. And certainly an emotional investment if we achieve any level of intimacy. It requires an emotional investment. So when I get hurt again in a close relationship, I withdraw and my heart turns hard and bitter. Is it because of the depth of the hurt I've experienced? I feel like it is. I feel like I'm bitter because of what you just did but more is going on, at least to some degree, I am responding to the older hurt. That old hurt is really the source of my bitterness, and when I can identify that, I'm able to deal effectively with the current hurt. It still hurts, but it doesn't resign itself into bitterness. Last week, real quick, last week we noted that we talked about how to deal with grief effectively. And we noted that grief is really not an emotion. It's kind of a complex of emotions, and it's a process. I would say kind of in the same way bitterness is a lack of process. Bitterness is a resolve to stay angry, a resignation to depression. It's the lack of process. Step number two, pull out bitterness by the root. Hebrews 12, 15, see to it, the author of Hebrews says that no one misses the grace of God. Counterpoint. And that no bitter root grows up to cause trouble and defile many. I cannot allow bitterness to fester. When I've identified the source, I must root out the bitterness I am now experiencing. Regardless of how justified I may feel, I must do the hard work of letting go of my bitterness. It's not justified, and it's only hurting me and everyone around me. As Hebrews says, bitterness inevitably becomes a burden to us, and it defiles many. The bitter housewife who drinks herself to sleep every night, think of the impact that's having on her children. And for many of you, that's your story. Ten years ago, on June 14th, 60 descendants of the original Hatfields and McCoys gathered in Pike Field, Kentucky, the Hatfields and McCoys, to sign a document declaring an official end to their feud. (laughs) The ceremony was nationally televised, 
and was attended by the governors of West Virginia and Kentucky. The feud between the Hatfields of West Virginia and the McCoys of Kentucky had lasted 125 years. Where is Mike Cannon? That's how those Kentucky people hang on to things. Most of the descendants think the feuding began in 1878 when Randolph McCoy accused one of the Hatfields of stealing a hog. The Hatfields won the hog war when a McCoy cousin sided with the opposing clan, and with that, the bitterness began. And out of that hog war, many, over the course of generations, were killed, and property was damaged. Over the years, 12 people have been killed. Thousands of dollars in property damage has been lost, and tens of thousands of dollars in court fees have been spent. Clearly, bitterness has the power to defile many. That's why we have to root it out. One more quick little illustration. When I was a kid, my family lived about 30 minutes from Myrtle Beach in South Carolina in a rural community that specialized in growing tobacco. I remember watching people work tobacco all summer long, and this week I ran into a note from an, an author named Alan Beck that fascinated me. Listen to what Beck says. He said, my first summer job was weeding tobacco, and most of the time we would walk the seemingly endless rows with a hose, scuffing out weeds in, in relative comfort, but inevitably, when we got close to the fence, we ran into thistles. Hundreds and hundreds of little thistles. They looked harmless enough, but you couldn't scuff them out with a hoe. You had to get down on your knees and pull those prickly little things out by the roots. We often thought it would be far easier to just let them stay there. After all, they weren't very big, but the farmer knew that if we left them until harvest time, they would multiply. And when we reached out to get a handful of tobacco, we would come away with a palm full of thorns. Beck ended his illustration like this. Listen, I found in my life, bitterness is a lot like those little thistles. We can push away hurts and pains, but the only way to get rid of bitterness is to fall to our knees and pull it out by the root through prayer. It's hard work, but if we leave a little bitterness in our hearts, it grows until it does real damage to everyone around us. Step three, assume the best that you can about the offending person. And the story, the Jesus story that Emily read this morning, did you notice the master took pity on the servant. The servant owed the master, and Jesus picks a ridiculous sum, more than this servant would make in ten lifetimes. So the servant tries to extract that debt, and the servant falls on his knees, and the master took pity on the servant. This is hard work, but he assumed the best that he could about this servant's intentions. We must condition ourselves to think as favorably as we can to those in our lives. This is what Paul meant in one of his letters when he said, bear with one another in love. In other words, others will present you with difficulties. Their baggage will infringe on you. You'll have to assume the best and bear with them. It's part of what it means to be community. We often accomplish this by reminding ourselves of our own shortcomings. We need others to assume the best about us, and we often blame them when they don't, so we should assume the best as well. It's true that sometimes people don't mean well, and we know it. But even in this case, we can try to understand why they're operating the way they are and extend as much grace as possible. That's why I said assume the best that you can. But make sure you really know the person means to do you harm before you assume that they do. Step three, assume the best that you can about the offending person. Step four, cherish your own forgiveness. This is Jesus' main point in the story, after all. 
The first servant simply did not recognize how profoundly he had been forgiven. Don't miss this. Real connection with God does not result in knowing that you are forgiven. Real connection with God is blown away by the forgiveness that you've been given. It's not enough to be aware of God's forgiveness. We've got to understand how much God has forgiven us, and we've got to cherish that forgiveness if we're going to be free to forgive others. The first servant is forgiven a fortune, yet he cannot forgive three months' wages. I wonder if we are sometimes like that. And step five, whatever it is, let God handle it. Romans 12, 19 says this, Don't take revenge, my friends, but leave room for God's wrath, for it's written, It's mine to avenge, I will repay, says the Lord. I did a brief devotional time this week, just in my own personal time. I was looking at waiting on God in the Psalms. And I don't know that I've ever put this together before. I realized that waiting on Psalms often in the, the Psalms is in this context. The psalmist is crying out to God, when are you going to act? But he's not acting. He's waiting on God to act. Whatever it is, let God handle it. God will settle all accounts. You are incapable. You cannot carry the burden. You cannot accomplish it. You cannot care. Let your bitterness go. You can't do anything about it anyway. You can't accomplish justice. I'm reminded of a scene from Forrest Gump. Forgive the reference. You know, Forrest Gump's the life story of a physically and mentally challenged man played by Tom Hanks. He accomplishes incredible things with his simple reasoning and his persistence. In one scene, Forrest and his childhood friend Jenny are walking down an old gravel road uh, shaded by hardwood trees. Jenny carries her sandals, and the walk seems pleasant until they happen upon an abandoned, weather-worn house. The sight is horrifying to Jenny. It's her childhood home, a place where Jenny had been abused by her alcoholic father. Forrest sees the pain etched on Jenny's face as she walks ahead of him toward the old abandoned house. Suddenly, Jenny throws her shoes at the house and then begins picking up rocks and furiously throwing them against the house. Years of pent-up anger are released in that scene. When nothing is left to throw at the house, Jenny falls to the ground crying. Forrest sits down in the muddy driveway beside her and says, Sometimes I guess there just aren't enough rocks. There are never enough rocks to satisfy our bitterness. We simply don't have the capacity or the wisdom to carry out justice perfectly, but God does. He sees every hurt and every harm. He knows every heart perfectly. He knows exactly the right way to mete out justice, and he has the power to do so. Look, this is what Peter finally came to understand when he watched Jesus die. I love Peter's summary. For Peter, this is a remembrance, and he's reflecting back on Jesus' death in 1 Peter 2, chapter 2, verse 23. Peter says this, look, when they hurled insults at him, he didn't retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. You see, this is why Jesus was able to go to the cross without bitterness. Okay, he knew that it was his destiny, sure, And he knew that this is when God and his people had to be bridged. But even still, how could he look at his accusers with pity? How could he see them with compassion while looking through swollen eyes and a battered face? How could he feel anything but the open wounds pressed against the cruel cross? How could he get past the excruciating pain of broken ankles and shattered wrists? He could do so because he could trust God the Father to handle it. Whatever it is, let God handle it. 
So whether it's a former boss, a mother-in-law, a father, a mother, a grandfather, a son-in-law, a neighbor, an old enemy. Step six, forgive. When we're hurt, many of us cannot get to this point easily, but we must get there. I believe our happiness depends on it. I believe our happiness depends on it. I believe our happiness depends on this. I was interested recently when I read a study of what makes people happy. A couple of psychologists from the University of Illinois and I believe the University of Michigan and their cohorts produced a study of people's happiness. Psychologist Ed Diner from the University of Illinois summarized part of his findings like this. This is fascinating. Wealthy suburban Americans, listen up. Dr. Diner says, quote, materialism is toxic for happiness, end quote. Even rich materialists aren't as happy as those who care very little about getting and spending. The article also quoted University of Michigan psychologist Christopher Peterson, who indicated forgiveness is the trait most likely linked to happiness. Peterson said this, Forgiveness is the queen of all virtues and probably the hardest to come by, end quote. So walk through steps one through five and then offer forgiveness. It's the only way to rid yourself of the burden of bitterness. All right, let me end. I just want to offer an astounding story, for both for our inspiration, but also, I think, for our instruction. This incident happened several decades ago, but it's still one of the most in- incredible pictures of resistance to bitterness through the exercise of forgiveness that I've ever heard. I, I want us to hear this story as a striking example of the way out of bitterness for us. So, all God's people, listen up. On the evening of April 25th, 1958, a terrible tragedy happened on the campus of the University of Pennsylvania. A young Korean exchange student, a leader in student Christian affairs, left his apartment and went to the corner to mail a letter to his parents in Korea. As he turned back from the mailbox, he stepped into the path of 11 leather-jacketed teenage boys. And this was 1958. Without a word, they attacked him beating him with a blackjack, a lead pipe, and even with their shoes and fists. Later that evening, the police found this Korean boy in the gutter. He was dead from the beating. All Philadelphia, press, uh, radio, and television, cried out for vengeance. The DA gave legal authority for the boys to be tried as adults so they could be given the death penalty. Then shortly before the trial, a letter arrived from Korea, addressed to the DA. It was signed by the boy's parents and 20 other relatives. It read in part, quote, Our family has met together and we have decided to petition that the most generous treatment possible within the laws of your government be given to those who have committed this criminal action. In order to give evidence of our sincere hope contained in this petition, We have decided to save money to start a fund to be used for the religious, educational, vocational, and social guidance of the boys when they are released. We have dared to express our hope with a spirit received from the gospel of our Savior, Jesus Christ. 
who died for our sins. Let's pray. So, Lord, we open our heart this morning and ask that you would show us the hidden corners where bitterness might be leeching and lurking, draining us of emotional freedom and spiritual vitality, leeching away from our connection with you. We pray that you would help us in identifying the soft spots in our life. The past hurts. The opportunities that they present for anger to be nurtured, for uh, depression to cling to us, for bitterness to develop. Jesus, hear us this morning. We want to be free. Lord, we want to be free of all that makes us anxious. We want to be free from depression and, and anger. Lord, we want to be clear of grief. We want to work it well and get to wholeness. And God, we want to let go of our hands and release bitterness. Whatever it is, we release it to you. We don't have the capacity to, to deal with it anyway. God, we open up this morning the darkest corners. And we ask for your light. You are light. In you, there's no darkness at all. Hear us this morning. As we just begin, we just touch the edges of recognizing how much you have forgiven in us and the price that Jesus paid to make us right with you, to enable us to build a connection with you. Jesus, we thank you. Strengthen us, equip us, and enable us to be glad-hearted forgivers of others because we've been given so much of it. Jesus paid it all, all to Him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain, He washed to us. 